How many of you guys and girls have played dodgeball? Raise your hand. Kids especially, adults, if you want to confess to this as well. You've played dodgeball. How many of you have played uh, dodgeball where you had team captains and then, you know, they had to pick the team, right? How many of you have ever been a team captain in that kind of a scenario? You can raise your hand. Um, if not, you can probably still understand where I'm going with this. When you're a team captain and you're looking around to pick out your dodgeball team, and really this could apply for a lot of different athletic sports, but if specifically dodgeball, if you're looking around, who are you going to look for to you know base your team off of? So usually, and I'm just going to take some, some stabs here because I think I've got some wisdom in this. Usually, you're going to look for the big kid with the long arms and the fast reflexes. You're going to look for the fast kids, the kids that are athletic. You're going to pick the ones that look like they can help you the best, right? The psalmist is not going to talk about dodgeball, but he's going to talk about somebody that's on his side, and I want you to listen for that this morning. We've mentioned before how the book of Psalms has, is broken down into different categories. And we've just kind of, not arbitrarily, but put out our own kind of categories. And we've preached through them. Uh, Psalms of Lament, um, which actually next week, we've got two more weeks after today in the book of Psalms. Next week will be Psalm 94, and it's a Psalm of Lament. And the next week will be a wrap-up psalm sermon that has several of them, and we'll talk about the thrust of all of those as we close the series out. But there's psalms of lament, there's psalms of uh, thanksgiving, which is today, there's psalms of praise, there are psalms of wisdom, of history. And so there's all kinds of different genres is the word we use for those, but there's also some some categories. And I've mentioned this probably way back at the beginning of our study, but the book of Psalms, all 150 books, have been broken down into five major books within the book. Okay, And that's not super significant for you guys, but uh, th- those divisions have been put there not by theologians down through the years, not by translators of your modern-day English translation. Those were put in there by the authors of Psalms themselves. They're actually written into the text, and each one of those kind of smaller books within Psalms ends with a very similar way. It's, it's actually really interesting if you want to study that more. The fifth book and final book of Psalms is Psalm 107 through 150. And there are some subsets of chapters even further in there. And this is significant because of the psalm that we're in today, Psalm 118. This psalm has been called the Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And most scholars agree that these psalms, specifically Psalms 113 through 118, that's those Egyptian Hallel Psalms, that those were probably sung as part of the, the Passover celebration for the Jews every year. Okay, They celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That was the main thrust of the Passover after all, was celebrating God's great deliverance and a, His amazing faithfulness and His covenant love to His people. And that's what, that's what they did. That's what they remembered when they celebrated the Passover. So I want you to think about this. And this was an idea that I read this week from another pastor. Think about this with me. 
it's possible if these are the Psalms, 113 through 118, if these are the Psalms that the Israelites would sing together at Passover, Psalm 118 was likely sung by Jesus the night before he was crucified, when he was with the disciples in the upper room. Matthew 26, at the end of their time together at the Passover meal, verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus went to pray. That's where Judas betrayed him. And that set off that whole chain of events. They sang a hymn. It's, it's possible, likely maybe even, that Psalm 118 was sung by Jesus the night before he was crucified. Now, this isn't the last psalm that's quoted by Jesus before he died. We talked about this when we looked at Psalm 22 back around the Easter time when it said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of Psalm 22. Likely as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he quotes that psalm, that the rest of that chapter flowed in the Israelites' minds as they were sitting there watching the Son of God. Psalm 18, 118, would have been an important song to the Jewish people especially, even Jesus. Not just the Israelites, not just Jesus himself, but saints down through the ages. Particularly Martin Luther said this, Although the entire Psalter and all of Holy Scriptures are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with this psalm especially. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. Let's read it together. Psalm 118, there's 29 verses. And then we'll pray. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and that you've become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns on the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, God, help us to see a risen Savior in Psalm 118. Help us to think upon the words that the author wrote and not just internalize them and ask, what does this mean for me, Lord, but to see what it means for all Christians for all eternity. Lord, but that includes those who you called out and made your own that are listening today. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study and as we think, that you, Lord, would direct those things so that we might glorify your name all the more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we talked about the groupings, um, but as we've studied through the Psalms this year, I think we could kind of simplify all of those groupings into three major kind of headings. And, and it's this. These categories are, Oh God, please help me. Like that's one of the, the way that the Psalms are written. Oh God, please help me. Or another one is, God, thank you for helping me. And then maybe a third category is just some of both of those things. It's a really simplified way, but most of the Psalms filter down into one of those three categories. And I think Psalm 118 fits into category two, saying, God, thank you for helping me. I hope you can see this is a Psalm of Thanksgiving as we read through it. Now look at the opening verse with me. You hopefully recognize as we were reading that the first verse and the 29th verse, the opening and closing verses are the exact same. No difference. So there's specific intentional structure to this psalm. Not a coincidence. But note something else with me from the first verse. Now we aren't just being told to give thanks because of everything the Lord has done for us. Now, that's absolutely part of why we give thanks, but it's not the first reason that's listed in Psalm 118. We touched on this a little bit in the adult Sunday school class this morning. The first reason that the psalmist here tells us to give thanks is because his steadfast love endures forever. And in fact, that's not even the first thing. The first thing is, for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That's the first thing that we're commanded to give thanks for, because the Lord, he is good. Now, it's not wrong to say that God does good because that's 100% true. It's also not wrong to say that he has been good to me or he has been good to us because that also is 100% true. Gratefulness, though, should come from a recognition that God is in and of himself good. He is good. Full stop. That's all we need to give thanks. And that's what the author starts with here. I think that's significant. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, goodness is his essence and nature, and therefore he's always to be praised whether we are receiving anything from him or not. Those who only praise God because he does them good 
should rise to a higher note and give thanks to him because he is good. Now, moving on, verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice that there is a, a very definite pattern here, and we've said this before. Pattern in Scripture is emphasis. There's a reason why he says the same things over and over. He says that they are to, uh, to say it. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let house of Aaron say it. Let those who fear the Lord say it. Now those who fear the Lord, we've already covered Israel, we've already covered the priestly uh, job and duties, and so those who fear the Lord may be Gentiles who recognize the goodness of God and who are hearing this. And the author says, say it. Go for it. Now, of course, when he says say it, he doesn't mean to say it in a whisper. His steadfast love endures forever. That's not what he's getting at. What, what kind of a voice do you think he's calling people to say this with? With shouts. Shouts of joy. Now, this word, the phrase, say it, actually means to declare or to publish it, to report it or to certify it. Like you're putting your stamp on what you say. This is true. His love endures forever. His mercy, his steadfast love endures forever. With your voices, lift them up. Say it, verify it. He is good. With your mouths, declare what the Lord has done. His love endures forever. Now remember, keep this in mind as we move on. Remember what group of psalms this is a part of, right? The Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Remember when these psalms were traditionally sung during Passover. And remember who probably sang maybe these very words the night before he was crucified. Okay, Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus sang the words... His steadfast love endures forever the day before he goes to the cross. The day before he says, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? But he's singing his love endures forever. And it was put to the test the next day when he was put on the cross. Look at verse 5. Five through nine are kind of this psalmist's personal testimony of the mercy of the Lord. So something had happened in his life when it caused him distress. And in that distress, where did he turn? He did not turn to chariots and strong horses of war. That's what we talked about last week. He didn't put his faith and trust in those things. He put his trust and he called out to the Lord without hesitation the Lord answered him. It set him free. Jehovah delivered him. And the psalmist knew it was only because of what God has done. He says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then he, then he says, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I'll look in triumph on those who hate me. Now go back to the dodgeball analogy that we were talking about earlier. If you are picking a team, you're going to pick the biggest, strongest, fastest, most most athletic person to anchor your team around because they're probably 
going to get you to the end. Well, again, the the author here is not talking about the playground or dodgeball, but you still want the most powerful ally on your side when you are going to face big odds against you. Well, this is what David is, or whoever wrote this psalm, we think it might be David, but whoever the psalmist is thinking of is the Lord. And we know this. He says, the Lord is on my side. I don't need to fear anybody. In fact, it's almost like it's this scoff, like, what can you do to me? What can man do to me? If, if God, if I have got the biggest force on my side, you can't do anything. You're not going to win. I am. Because I've got the winner. <laughs> he doesn't need to fear anybody. Now notice something in this text though. Remember words are specific. He doesn't say that he won't suffer at the hands of men. Does he? He just says that he doesn't need to fear them. So when he was sizing up the fear of what man could do against the power of God, man, it was really clear whose team the psalmist wanted to be on. And I would think that maybe your mind goes back to what Paul said in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can man do to me? I don't need to fear. If we're walking in his ways and devoted to following him, we don't have anything to be afraid of. Now, we all know that that's true, I think. I'm not giving you any new information here. But do we live like it's true? Do we live like God is a bigger force than anything we can come in contact with in this life and we don't need to fear it? Or do we fear that verdict from the doctor or that tense relationship and seeing that person while we're out? Or do we fear losing our job? Do we fear being able to provide for a family? What do we really live like that? Do we fear like the author is saying against here? He's saying, I don't need to fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. The Lord is my helper. So, the author here, he was, he was sure fear wasn't the answer. He, he did not need to fear any man. But verses 8 and 9, they tell us that he also knew it wasn't wise to put his trust in those men either. He didn't need to fear them, but he shouldn't trust them either. He says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man or than to trust in princes. This is something I would reckon to say that we all know is true. But how do we know it? How do you know that you can't put your trust in a person? Personal experience, right? We've, we've all been hurt. We've all been deceived, maybe stabbed in the back, maybe lied to, or maybe it was good intentions on their part. They just fell short and they disappointed us. They hurt us. They let us down. But that's how we learn this, is through hard personal experience. It's a hard truth that we learn this. And the reason I think we all understand too is because that person, that man, that prince that you're putting your confidence in, they're a person just like you. They're a sinner just like you. No one is perfect. and No one performs perfectly 
good all the time. Even, the author says, even princes, royal bloodlines that are known for their valor and their bravery, they're supposed to have extra amounts of backbone. Well, they even fall to the pressures of sin and disappoint us. I, I read one old pastor say this this week, a weather vane covered in gold turns in the wind just as easily as a weather vane made of tin. It doesn't matter the position we hold. We're all stained by sin and we all let each other down. That's why putting people up on a pedestal is a bad idea. Pastors, politicians, teachers, don't do it. Don't put them on a pedestal. They will disappoint you because they're a sinner just like you. Now, this is a hard truth that we learn, but we don't only learn negative through these kinds of experiences. It's not all negative. We do learn in those moments who we can't trust, but I think we also learn in those moments who we can trust. This is what he says. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man or princes. We learn who we can trust. You can trust the Lord. Centuries of people have come to find this verifiably true. God can be trusted. There are experienced Christians in this church who will gladly share their life experiences with you about why you can trust God. They're here. God is faithful and they will make it known to you. They will say it. Will you say it? When others let us down, God never does. So the common man, royalty, princes, none of them can help the way God can help. It's better not to trust them. It's better to put our faith and our allegiance and our hope in God alone. Now look at verse 10, 10 through 13. This is another kind of repetitive section. It's another example of the author's personal testimony of God's rescue. He was surrounded. He uses that word a bunch of times here. So there's again, emphasis. He was surrounded, surrounded on every side. He was surrounded like bees, surrounded like fire. I've mentioned it before, but I am a novice beekeeper. How many of you have ever been surrounded by bees? It, hopefully only beekeepers are raising their hand. I see some of you all. Um, if you've ever been around a lot of bees at once, it can be very frightening. It can, especially if you're like allergic, that'd be a really bad thing. Okay. But being surrounded by bees is intimidating. It's scary. How about ever been in a fire? Same way. Intimidating. This is a fearful thing. He says, I'm surrounded. But then what does he say at the end of every phrase? In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, cut them off can also be described as destroying them. I, I destroyed them or they were destroyed. The author uses the analogy of bees and fire. But what happens to a bee when it stings? It dies. A honeybee specifically, when it stings you, it dies. It gives its life to hurt you. <laughs> They're very vindictive little creatures, I guess. Um, but it dies. What happens when a fire loses fuel? It dies. 
If there's nothing else to burn up, it dies. So even though the author here was surrounded on every side, he felt like fire, like bees were surrounding him. It looked like it might be the end of him. He says in verse 13, like he might fall. The reality was that the things that were pushing hard on him only lasted for a moment. If you've been stung by a bee, hopefully it wasn't a bunch of bees at once, but if you've been stung by a bee, it hurts, it's painful, it swells, there's itching involved, but it goes away. It only lasts for a while. The bees were scattered, the choir was quenched, and in the name of the Lord, the author says, they were destroyed. His enemies were gone. This is his testimony of the help of God. Now, look at verse 14. This might sound familiar to you. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This might sound familiar because the author here quotes Moses in Exodus chapter 15. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And he goes on to say in Exodus verse, chapter 15, verse 2, This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. It's okay to borrow songs of victory from God's people and sing them when we need to. Moving to verse 15 and 16, this actually sounds a lot like another part of Moses' song in Exodus 15. Verse 6, it says there, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And that's what the psalmist here is drawing on, talking about the right hand of the Lord. He does valiantly. It exalts. It does valiantly. He repeats again there. Shatters the enemy is the way that Moses said it. When God delivers and rescues, the ones who have been delivered and rescue, rescued, they can't stay quiet about it. They look out and they say, let me tell you about what the Lord has done to save me. The right hand of God, or the right hand in general, was kind of the dominant hand. So sorry you lefties. In olden times, the right hand was the dominant hand, and so if a person wanted to give their best effort in something, they would use that hand, the strong, the skillful one. And so what the psalmist is getting at is that God spares no expense when he rescues his people. He uses only the strongest and most skillful measures that he can. And that's what we see. The right hand of God does valiantly. Do you need your ball? Here you go. Oh, there you go. He's got it. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. The psalmist here, his confidence is is growing and he is confident that God would keep him even from death in the present crisis that he was in. And what was he going to do? Notice what he does at the end of that verse. How was he going to use his life? So God had delivered him, brought him out of the, the death situation, what was he going to do? Declare the works of the Lord. Recount the deeds of the Lord. That was what his life was going to be used for now. Since God had rescued him and saved him, God was going to get his service. Isn't that 
Isn't that the heartbeat of every Christian even today? Just, just what he's getting at here. If we have been rescued from the domain of darkness, if we have been brought into the light, saved from eternal spiritual death by God's grace, doesn't he then deserve our de- devotion and dedication? Nobody else could save us that way. No one else can save us spiritually except for God. Don't then the days, weeks, months, years, energy, effort, don't these things then belong to the Lord? Well, the author thought so. I I tend to think Jesus thought so too. If you think back to when he called specifically the fishermen as his disciples, what did he say to them? Hey guys, when you get a chance, if you're not doing anything, you can come along with me. That's not what he said. You know that's not what he said. What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. In other parts, he said, it's not going to be easy. You're going to actually have to take up your cross and follow me. And the disciples did it. They dropped their nets. They left their jobs. They gave up collecting taxes. And they devoted their lives to following the Messiah. And every genuine born-again believer still does the same thing today. We still drop our old lives and follow Jesus because nothing else matters. Verse 18 talks about the discipline of the Lord. Again, this is something we've touched on and something that none of us are fond of. Hebrews 12 reminds us of that. It's not fun in the moment. But there is discipline when following Jesus. We talked about this as well in the in adult Sunday school class this morning and throwing our minds back to the shepherd. God is our shepherd. We are the sheep and some of the tools of the shepherd is rod and his staff or the hook that brings us back and sometimes it's with a little force because we need it. This is the discipline of the Lord and usually we don't like it. But God includes this in your sanctification process. That's part of the package. And we don't like to talk about that, especially churches that don't talk about sin much or the cost of following Jesus. They don't talk about that as part of the package. But it is. Part of the package is you're going to suffer for his name's sake. You're going to have to give up your life, but you can find it in Christ. It's part of the package. The discipline goes along with it. The psalmist understood that God had a training and corrective purpose in allowing the present crisis in his life, but that God would not allow it to fully destroy him. He was confident in that. Just like the correction and discipline of the Lord in our lives still today, the crisis would be actually of benefit to the believer in the end. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 explain this further. You can jot those down. And you probably know Romans 8.28, but read 8.29 as well. Because it explains God's good in your life is not just blessings and stuff. It's to conform you more to the image of Christ. And that is a difficult process. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me this morning. He starts talking about gates. Talking about entering through them. 
I think he has maybe some kind of triumphal entry in mind, you know, a conquering king or a, some kind of a general coming back into town and they throw the gates open and they welcome them back in because of their victory. Um, and it's, there's joy. There's celebration that's included here. But what's on the lips of the people that come in conquering? Is it self-praise? Look at what we have done. Look at what I have done. Is it self-adoration? No. It's praises and thanksgiving to the Lord. He says, open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and do what? Sing my own praises? No. Give thanks to God. Praises and thanksgiving to the Lord. Why? Verse 21, because he has answered me and become my salvation. The author gives thanks for answered prayer and for salvation. So when you start, maybe, I don't know what you do with your Thanksgiving traditions with your family. Maybe you start making a list. Maybe you just go around the table and everybody say what they're most thankful for. Where do these things fall on your list? Answered prayer, salvation. They ought to be pretty high on the list, don't you think? Now we come to verse 22. We just have to pause for a moment. Now we're not not sure again what the personal experience was in the life of the psalmist that led to him writing these words. You can see, and if you remember these words, when it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, you, you might could be able to apply that to David or to Joseph before him, or maybe even to Jacob before him. Those guys were all cast down. They were all rejected, but then lifted high. They were lifted up in the end. This could apply to them. But we know on this side of the cross with all of inspired scripture in our hands, we know how Jesus used this verse. And we know how Peter used this verse. And we know how Paul used this verse. They all quote Psalm 118 verse 22 in reference to Jesus Christ. So was the psalmist talking about Jacob, Joseph, David, those guys? Maybe, possibly, But certainly we see that these are prophetic words inspired by God that look forward in time, hundreds and hundreds of years into the future from when they were written, to talk specifically about the author of salvation, the redeemer, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And if you've got notes this morning, I've got a whole long list of when that is quoted in the New Testament from Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Ephesians, and even 1 Peter 2. You can look those up. The cornerstone, we've mentioned this, you guys probably are aware, uh, also called the capstone or the headstone of a structure. What was its purpose? It stabilized everything. It's the key piece of the foundation. And if that gets off, if that is wrong, if it's not solid and not square and not true, what happens to the whole structure that's built on top of it? It comes crumbling down. It may stand for a time, but it will come crumbling down eventually. So on behalf of all those who've been redeemed, and despite the rejection of the builders, the psalmist recognizes that this, all of this, 
is the Lord's doing. And he praises God for his work in verse 23. You can see he points back to God. This is his work. Now, verse 24 is a great a great verse. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Songs have been written with that. And I think we should sing them with joy and with confidence and with excitement. But you know what? I'm not sure that's what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote this. That we get up and say, hey, today's the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad in it. Now, that, that applies. You could get up and do that, and you would not be wrong to do it. But I think the psalmist had something more in mind when he wrote this. I wonder if the day, today is the day the Lord has made. I wonder if that day here is tied to the cornerstone that was just mentioned. I wonder if it was tied to the day that the cornerstone was rejected by the builders. Appears like maybe this could be the meaning when we continue on in verse 25 and 26 where the psalmist cries out to God again for salvation. He says, save us, O Lord, give us success or give us victory. And then he starts talking about the house of the Lord in verse 27. The house of the Lord and bind the sacrifice on the altar. I want you to, you can put your your ribbon or your finger or bookmark in Psalm 118. I want us to flip back together to Numbers chapter 6. Because verse 27, Psalm 118 verse 27 is, is so great. And I want us to see from Numbers chapter 6. So Psalm 118 verse 27 says... The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Look, Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Does that sound familiar? And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now you've probably heard this before. This is a blessing on the people of Israel. So if you follow at the beginning there in verse 22, the Lord told Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people. All right? Are we all all together still? To, to tell this to them as a blessing over them. Now, there are five things in Psalm 118 in relation to Numbers chapter 6 that I do not think are a coincidence. So you can flip back and kind of keep your finger in between them. But look at Psalm 118, verse 22. The cornerstone, the cornerstone is pointed out. All right? Verse 26a. The same phrasing here in Psalm 118, 26a is used when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Did you notice? What did they sang when he came in riding on a, on a donkey? And they put the palm branches and their cloaks over the path. What did they say? They said, blessed is, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
I don't think this is a coincidence. The third thing is that in chapter 118, second half of verse 26, the imagery of the tabernacle is used. The house of the Lord. Verse 27, the beginning of verse 27, the Lord makes his face shine upon his people. Remember, this was the blessing from God to Moses to Aaron to the people back in number six. And then the end of verse 27, a sacrifice is being bound to an altar. I just can't imagine this as coincidence. With as much specificity as God uses in his word, he's speaking prophetically about his son. He's talking about Jesus. So this is as much a messianic psalm as it is a psalm of thanksgiving. But every messianic psalm should cause thanksgiving in his people. Now maybe this was fulfilled in a way that the psalmist never considered. Maybe as the guy who's writing this, whether it was David or some other psalmist, maybe he never imagined that it would happen the way that it did in Jesus' life. But it has inspired people throughout the ages to understand who Jesus is in a more clear way. And I think this is what he was pointing at. The deliverer of the previous verses who had helped him and rescued him and had cut off his enemies, that deliverer, now the cornerstone whom the builders rejected, he himself was going to be the sacrifice that was bound on the altar. And it's remarkable to consider that Jesus sang these words just maybe a day before his crucifixion. Then comes verse 28. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Can you imagine those words reverberating around the upper room with Jesus? Evidence of his submission to the Father. He says, you are my God. I will extol you. I will praise you with everything that I can. In obedience to the Father. And then we come to the end. Verse 29, which is the same as verse 1, remember. These things kind of case the whole psalm. They're sort of parentheses that go around everything together. It's again thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Another pastor I was reading this week said, This psalm began with exuberant and heartfelt praise and it ends with the same. Recognizing once again the goodness of God at the end of it all. If we start with praise, we're in a much better position to end with praise despite anything we might go through. And we see this clearly played out in the life of Jesus. That that pastor uh, goes on to say, Jesus himself believed in and received this unending mercy and proclaimed it as a song with his disciples in the upper room. The same mercy, the same covenant love that never ended for him has also been given to his people. Man, think about that. This is why Christians are people who give thanks. 
no matter what is going on in their lives, this is why we have something to give thanks for. And it's not just because God has blessed us with a house that's beautiful or a car that runs or maybe it's really even nice. It's not because he's given us the clothes in our wardrobes or the toys in our toy boxes or anything like that. It's not even because he gives us our health. Now, it's not wrong to give thanks for those things, but that's not the full reason why we give him thanks and praise, is it? We give thanks because the love that sustained Jesus on the cross is the same love given to every person who believes. It's the same. And God wants to give that love to you in a way that you've never known before. And so this kind of thankfulness that we have in light of what God has done, of who God is, of this love that he's given to every person who believes, this kind of thankfulness cannot be snuffed out when things of this earth go away. When you get that diagnosis from the doctor that's not good, that doesn't eliminate your thankfulness. That doesn't eliminate your joy because it's not rooted in your health. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. We're not dependent on these the things of this earth for happiness. We're dependent on the Lord. And so if God holds our joy, nothing outside of his hand can affect that. So my hope and my prayer is that each one of us, every person, can stand and say with confidence and with, with joy... The same thing that the psalmist says. Firstly, in the very first part of chapter 118, his steadfast love endures forever. Can you say it? People of God, house of Israel, can you say it? <laughs> if you can, there's something else I think we should say. It's verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Can you say that today? That he has become your salvation. If not, you can. His love endures forever. That means it endures through all of the junk of your life. Whether it was self-inflicted junk or just stuff of the world that has come upon you, God's love endures through it straight to you. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful that your love endures forever. I'm so thankful that as your child, as your children here, we get to say it with an exclamation mark, with joy and with conviction and with hope. Lord, this is the time of year where we think about everything that we're thankful for. May at the very top of our list be a new entry, that you are good. We're just thankful, Lord, that you are good. Because then that that affects everything else that we experience in life. Because if you weren't good, we don't have reason to have joy. But if you are good, and you are, then we have every reason to have joy and to be thankful. And so, Lord, we thank you for answered prayer. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that his love, that the love that sustained Jesus on the cross, even in his dying moments, 
is the same kind of love that every person who believes is given. You pour it out on every person who believes. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help our unbelief today. Maybe in salvation that someone needs to maybe walk down this aisle and come talk to me or sit down and pray in their seat and trust in Christ for the first time. Lord, I pray that they would do that. Or maybe, Lord, you would help our unbelief in someone who's been saved, but they're struggling. Lord, I pray that they would put their hope in you, not in man, not in people who are supposed to be right and do good, Lord, but they would have full confidence in you and in you alone. Thank you that we are never let down when that is the case. Thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.